Good morning, everyone. Psalm 121, a song of ascent. I lift my eyes to the hills from what does my, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he will watch over Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. Last week, we started a, a new series in the Psalms. We're going to be following it through the summer. It's our summer sermon series in the Psalms. You can say that five times fast if you like. Um, and we were introduced to a collection of Psalms called the Songs of Ascents. Those are Psalms 120 through 134. And they were written in different styles at different times and by different authors, um, but they all came to be sung by the pilgrims of Israel as they traveled up to Jerusalem to worship God at the annual festivals there. And that's why they're called the Songs of Ascents, because wherever you were coming from in the ancient world, as you were headed into Jerusalem, you were headed up. It was up in elevation, so you had to, to climb up. It was up spiritually, at the highest point in the world, where God descended to dwell with his people in the temple there. He made a resting place for his name, a dwelling place there among his people. And these were the songs for the journey. They were the, the pilgrim's playlist, if you will. And we said that God's people today, last week we said, that God's people today are still pilgrims in this world. The New Testament calls Christians aliens and exiles in the world. Christians are people making a great journey uh, away from sin and death and into the heavenly city built by God's own hands, the new Jerusalem. Therefore, wherever we are on the journey, whether we have just set off today or, or whether we're maybe closing in on home, well, these songs are for us. And Psalm 121 is one of the most well-known songs in this collection. I, I think there are um, songs made out of it. I, I heard that there's a, a Chinese children's song from Psalm 121. Do you know that one, Leslie? No, okay. I thought it might be well-known, but maybe, maybe not. Um, it's well known for a reason, because it speaks of one of the things that a pilgrim, a journeyman, needs the most, which is protection. This is a song that starts with a traveler's anxiety about danger, and it ends with reassurance and peace. And if we really understand the truths that this psalm teaches, and that this song sings of, and, and if we make them our own, we will have reassurance and peace for whatever lies ahead in our journey. And last week in Psalm 120, we saw that that was a song for the day before the journey starts. 
uh, as somebody is feeling homesick and, and longing to go, and, and it says, go up. And Psalm 121, therefore, is a song for the traveler on the journey. You can, you can imagine them making their way towards Jerusalem, and, and with their bags packed and, and trudging down the trail, they look up to the mountains and they say, I lift my eyes to the mountains, from where does my help come? Now, it might not be immediately obvious what the psalmist sees as he looks to the mountains. Is he just enjoying this majestic view, as we often would as we look up to the mountains? Well, I don't think so. Judging by what he goes on to say, I think he's looking to the mountains as a source of danger. In the ancient Near East, mountains were the place where bandits would, uh, would hide out and watch for travelers, uh, lonely travelers walking down the paths, making their way wherever they were going. You can think of the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Jesus began that story like this. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem, so back out into the mountains, uh, to Jericho, when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And that's the sort of thing that would happen to you in the mountains in the ancient world sometimes. The hills have eyes, and, and for the pilgrims going up to the festival, doubly so, because they would be carrying lots of valuables with them. They're bringing their tithes, they're bringing their free will offerings, 10% of their yearly income plus more in these predictable times of year. The criminals were not foolish. It's like how in Saikung around Chinese New Year, you always get break-ins in the houses because they know people are going to have valuables at that time. And so they knew in the mountains during these festival times that there are going to be people traveling with great wealth. There were the physical dangers of the hills, but there, there were also, the mountains were also places of spiritual danger. In the ancient world, pagans were always setting up their shrines on the top of mountains. Think, for example, of um, another ancient culture. The, the Parthenon in Athens is uh, above the city on the highest point. That's where pagans built their shrines. And I was reading a book this week on the gods of China, and it seems that's the case here as well, or it was. And that's how it was in Israel and the surrounding regions. Um, even in the flatter areas, they would build artificial mountains called ziggurats, and they would build their shrines at the top of those. And these sites of pagan worship, uh, you could almost always find temple prostitutes at them as well, selling their wares to pious visitors as they passed through. It's exactly like the prostitution mixed with fortune-telling that you find on Temple Street in town. It still goes on. It's still connected because idolatry and illicit sex have always been connected. And so you can imagine the Israelite pilgrim on the way to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. They're carrying their tithes and their offerings, and the prostitutes are on the hilltop saying, hey, come up and spend some of that up here. It's why the prophet Jeremiah, in, in chapter 3 of the book of Jeremiah, he lamented, 
Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountaintops is a deception. Surely the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. And so the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, uh, for them, the mountains were a place of troubles, of fears, of temptations and worries. As they made their way from far and wide, they looked up to the mountains with anxiety about all kinds of dangers, both real and imagined. And as Christians, with our whole lives being a pilgrimage, not to a city in the Middle East, but to the, the heavenly city, as Hebrews 12.22 puts it, to, to Mount Zion, the, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, well, our lives are full of mountains as well. And so the, the psalmist asks, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? You know, it's a logical question. It is an important question. It, it's a question that you may have been asking yourself over recent weeks. Where does my help come from? I don't know the circumstances of your life, but we're all in need of help. And very often, we're in need of more help than we know at any given time. If we were to go around with a microphone this morning and hear from everyone in the room, we would hear of more mountains than we ever knew existed. And if we were to, to be honest about where we're looking for help, we would, we would be honest enough, I hope, to admit that very often, when we're, especially when we're hard-pressed, we're looking for help from sources that are not equipped to give us help, people that are not equipped to help us. For many people in our city, help comes from themselves. They think, if I put my mind to it, if, if, if I can be my own help. And so they put their time into advancing their careers and, and building up their wealth, believing that by doing so, they can protect themselves from all the dangers of life. If I just have a big enough account, if my pension is just uh, big enough, I will be able to weather these storms. Nothing in those mountains can hurt me. Others will be seeking help from something or, or someone uh, that doesn't suffice, whether a spiritual practice, a self-help book, a romantic interest, a healthy diet, an exercise. They're thinking, uh, all these different strategies are the ways that I'm going to be safe, even if everybody else falls under attack. And there are others still pursuing a different strategy. You know, you go to some of the bars in town, you see the guys who... Um, are drinking until they can't see the mountains anymore. And that's another way of dealing with this reality of anxiety. What do these, what do these mountains hold for me? Life is full of mountains. Where does your help come from? Well, for the psalmist and for the Christian today, ultimately, there is only one answer. That is 
the difference that, that being a Christian makes. Everyone is going to face all sorts of trials in life, all sorts of hardship. There's no avoiding them. But for the Christian, where they look for help is to the Lord. We see that wealth can be lost, that relationships can break down, that health can deteriorate. But to quote another psalm, Psalm 46, the Lord is an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. The Lord. The Lord made the mountains. My help comes from the Lord, verse 2, the maker of heaven and earth. You know, it's one thing to look to somebody for help. It's quite another uh, to be certain that they can help you. And so Josiah, he is at an age and stage where he thinks I can help him with just about anything. And so in his little three-year-old way, just about every day, for one reason or another, he says, help me, Dad? Help me? And when it's, it's scraping the last bit of food out of the bowl so that he can eat it, that's easy enough. I can help with that. No problem. But the other week, he, he spilled a cup of coffee on Catherine's laptop, and it, it went off. And he got told off about it. And uh, when I came into the room, he said, help me fix, Dad, help me. And I tried, but I couldn't fix. I couldn't revive the laptop. And what's even more often happening is they'll say, help me Spider-Man, Dad. I'm sorry, son, I can't make you Spider-Man, even if I wish I could. And his disappointment is obvious. But as, he looks, uh, as the psalmist looks to the mountains of life, and as the believer does, they can say with complete confidence, my help comes from the Lord. Why? Why can they have that kind of confidence? Because he is the maker of heaven and earth. He created everything. And therefore, he has authority over everything. He made the mountains and whatever dangers are hiding in the mountains. The whole universe is his. So everything that we might face in life, the attacks, the temptations, the fears, the disappointments, he sovereignly rules over all those things. And therefore, in every circumstance, brothers and sisters, he is able to be our help. Because he is the Lord, the, uh, he's Yahweh, the God who's entered into a covenant relationship. Not only can he help, but he is willing to help his people. He's entered into a relationship with his people. And that is the central life-changing truth of this psalm. That God can and will help in every circumstance. So if there's an area where you are particularly in need this morning, in need of help, well, the one who made everything is your help. There's nothing beyond him. He's omniscient. That means there's nothing outside of his expertise. He can handle it. He's omnipresent. Uh, that means there's nothing outside of his ability. He's omnipotent. 
is the able God. Able to do anything. And notice that when the psalmist grasps this truth for himself, it changes how he talks to himself. He goes from speaking about himself in the first person, verses 1 and 2, he's saying I and my in those verses, uh, to speaking about God to himself in the second person, you and your. From verse 3 to the end of the psalm, he's preaching to himself. He's, he's preaching to himself uh, the truth about God. And you know, it's a good thing for us to preach to ourselves, to preach the truth to ourselves, that is, because we have so many sources of, of lies that are, are preaching to us from the world and so many lies that we have begun to believe in various ways that when we grasp a truth from Scripture, we need to preach to ourselves and we need to do it over and over until we start to believe the truth of Scripture. it drives out the falsehood. So how does the psalmist apply this truth that his help comes from the maker of heaven and earth? Well, first, when the Lord is our help, we have continual guidance along the path, is what he says. Verses 3 and 4, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. One of the dangers of traveling on foot anywhere, but particularly in the ancient world, was that you might misstep, and the whole journey might be brought to a sudden end. Just about every weekend, you can hear the helicopters over the country park, can't you? Somebody has made a misstep. They've slipped, they've uh, twisted an ankle, they've fallen off of something and, and broken a leg, they... Maybe we're trying to get the perfect Instagram photo and they fell off of something that happens. In travel, our own missteps can bring the journey to a sudden end. But when the Lord is your help, according to the psalmist, he will not let your foot slip. It's not going to happen. You can enjoy his continual guidance in your pilgrimage, in your time on earth. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. That's to say, there is never a moment in life, in your life, when God is distracted or otherwise occupied or only half paying attention to what's going on in your day-to-day -day life. And that means he will never allow you to misstep so badly that your pilgrimage to the heavenly city ends prematurely. There are some Christians that are so tentative and afraid to make decisions in life because they think that they will choose wrongly and then they'll fall outside of God's will for them. They want to please the Lord, and though they want to please the Lord, they worry that a mistake is going to disqualify me. If I go against what other Christians that I respect say, it will disqualify me. But verses 3 and 4 tell us that God will not let you or anyone from among the whole number of his people, Israel, the God who watches over Israel, 
will not let you slip off the path. You won't slip off due to weariness. You won't slip off due to carelessness or foolishness. He will keep you heading toward the heavenly city, and he will make sure that you arrive there. Now, of course, you can end the pilgrimage if you so choose. In your rebellion, you can decide to reject the Lord and no longer follow Jesus. That's possible, but that's a different thing. The psalmist is saying that the Lord himself will ensure that every pilgrim reaches the end. Stay on the journey. And there is an incredible freedom in that. You're going to make it. I'm going to make it. It means you can live life with confidence. that Whatever comes, you're going to make it. The one who doesn't sleep is going to make sure of it. You can sleep because he doesn't sleep. Sure, we've got to use wisdom, but we can take risks in life knowing that God is not going to let our foot slip. And so that we can, we can go out and we can try and we can achieve astonishing things because we have that assurance. So we have God's continual guidance when he's our help. But second, we have, when the Lord is our help, we have complete protection from every danger. That's what the psalmist says. And whenever you're trying to understand one section of the Bible, uh, one of the tools to help you get the main point is to look for repetition. Look for repetition. Look for repetition. Got it? Okay. And throughout this psalm, Psalm 121, there's a key word that's repeated five times in the English, actually six times in the Hebrew. I wonder if you spotted it. It's the verb watch. Watch or, or keep. It's uh, in verse 7, it's translated keep. It's the same word, and it could uh, just as readily be translated as protect or guard. The message that the psalmist preaches to himself and to others in this psalm, therefore, is that the maker of heaven and earth will protect his people from every danger. Look at every danger listed in the last four verses. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The, the Lord will not allow his people to be sunstruck or moonstruck. On one level, that means he will not allow any physical danger like sunstroke or any mental danger like lunacy. Luna, see, we used to think that the moon was involved in in mental illness. He won't let either of those things prevent you from finishing the pilgrimage. You're going to make it. But it's also a merism. That's a technical term. It's a way of saying that two contrasting opposites are spoken of in order to include everything in between. So you have the sun and you have the moon. And so that includes every hour of the day, doesn't it? day and night, the whole time. So if God protects us day and night, that covers everything. He covers us like a 
shade, like a shadow, you could also say, staying that close to us. Verses 7 and 8, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. The Lord will protect you from every harm, says the psalmist. He'll protect your life, your, your soul, the, the inmost part of you. is not going to be damaged. The Lord will protect your coming and your going. Uh, coming and going, and everything in between. So every venture... Every enterprise, every journey, he will protect you. Both now, today, and forever, says the psalmist. And that's every, everything. You can't think of anything that's outside of those categories, can you? Now that is a sweeping promise that this psalmist is speaking here. And if you're paying attention, a question must have come to mind. How can that be true? How could it be? After all, didn't we say at the beginning that there are mountains in everybody's life, whether you're a Christian or not, you're, you're going to have dangers and you're going to have attacks. And this psalm says that God protects us by day and night from all harm, whether coming or going, and now and forevermore, it's categorical. How can this be so? Why has my experience of life often been one of disappointment, of failure by myself and of other people, and of weakness and of difficulty? Why is that? Why don't I see the protection? And one way to answer that, I think a good way to answer that is to take a step back. So we see what the, the psalm is saying, but take a step back and see how it fits into the broader picture of all of Scripture. Think about how various biblical characters could sing this psalm. Think about Joseph's story in Genesis, at the end of Genesis. How would he be able to sing this song? When he was hated by his brothers, uh, they faked his death, they sold him into slavery. How could he say God was keeping him from all harm in that? And when he was falsely accused and he was forgotten about in prison for years, was the Lord watching over his coming and going then? How could he sing this song? Well, from the perspective of Joseph, at the end of his story, he could sing this song. You remember what he said? If you're familiar with the story, uh, Genesis 50, verse 20, he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What he couldn't have seen in the midst of the, the nitty-gritty evils of his life, close up in the details, he saw when he took a step back and he viewed it from the perspective of the end. And from that perspective, 
or rather from the perspective of eternity. And for many of us, it will take until we're in eternity before we can see it from this perspective because all the evils that have happened in your life, all of the difficulties that you have faced, I don't know if you'll ever be able to see them until eternity in this way, but at eternity, from the perspective of eternity, you will see that God used every evil deed and intention in your life to eventually defeat evil. To defeat evil itself. And, and from that eternal perspective, each one of us will see how our own individual stories are incorporated into that bigger story. Now, isn't that a wonderful thought? The pain, the evil, the sadness that you have faced, God is using now and will use to destroy evil in this world and in your life, to deliver you into the heavenly city. And if in the meantime, before eternity, because it, it might well be a while before you can see how that's true, we believe it's true because God says it's true, but until you can see that, if you have trouble believing that, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And consider, how could he sing this song? And he looked to the hills from the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knew the evils that were chasing him down. And he prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. In a sense, he was saying, you are the maker of heaven and earth. Father, you aren't sleeping. You will not let my foot slip. You won't let my soul be lost. And he went to the cross. And it seemed like the bandits had overrun him and overwhelmed him. But the reality was that right there, he, he was securing the eternal future of his people, of you and me, so that not one of those who he had been given would be lost, but would be raised up on the last day. And we can see that so clearly at the cross, even if we can't see it, how it will work in our own lives, we can see it there. In Christ, the curse of the cross became the instrument of blessing for the whole world. And through Christ, everything we face in our earthly pilgrimage will be part of the story of how God brought us in to the heavenly city, delivered us up to an eternal future of peace and of joy. We will see how it was all for our good. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Nothing in all creation can separate us from him. Why? Because he's the creator of heaven and earth. And nothing is going to thwart the one so determined to use all things, even his own death, for our blessing. Nothing's going to stop him. So we can rest secure. Allow me to pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the creator of heaven and earth and you are in relationship with us. Thank you for the protection you offer, for the watch you're keeping, for the way that you never slumber or sleep or let us out of your sight. You number the hairs of our head so that even when we face persecution, which you promise we will, even when we face martyrdom, if we were to face it, we would be kept by you. We would be safe with you. Lord, please help us to trust that promise, to live into it, and to fear nothing as we walk through this, this earthly journey. We pray in Jesus' name, who gave himself for us. Amen.